Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. I've heard a lot of, I don't know how you do it, since my son was born, seven years ago. As a solo mom, you get used to the comments after a while. Most of them are well-intended. People trying to empathize with the fact that, yes, parenting without a partner can be hard. But every once in a while, there's one that stings. Years ago when my son was little, I made an offhand reference to how much I was struggling. To be honest, I don't even remember what was happening. Maybe my son was in the middle of a sleep regression, weeks in which I would stumble through my days in a bleary-eyed haze. Or maybe it was when I was rushing out of the office, panicked about being late for pickup at my son's preschool, and knowing that there was no one I could call on for backup. But I'll never forget the comment from a male colleague. There's a reason why most people tend to do what you're doing with another person. I don't believe that he meant it to be cruel or even judgmental. He was progressive after all, someone who would probably define himself as a feminist. But it made me realize just how deep our idealization of two-parent nuclear families really runs. Plus a related belief that when it comes to having kids, it's your private responsibility to figure it out. I'm Julie Kohler, and this is White Picket Fence. This season, we're exploring our country's caregiving crisis and the ideologies about race, gender, families, the economy, and yes, white women, that have led us to a point where so many of us are cracking. Today, we're exploring some of our closest held beliefs about families who they are, how they're structured, and how a set of myths created a system in which many of us suffer. Last week, we talked about the pandemic and the economic crisis it created, a crisis that drove millions of women out of the paid labor force. But just as the inequity in our economy long preceded COVID, so did our caregiving crisis. And at the root, is an exclusionary view of family life. So let's go back to a concept that we explored in season one, family privilege. The benefits, often unacknowledged, that a person gets by belonging to a family that's held up as superior. Dinner at home with the family. To understand how family privilege works, we need to look at the prototype, the two-parent nuclear family. Mother, too, changes from her daytime clothes. The women of this family seem to feel that they owe it to the men of the family to look relaxed, rested, and attractive at dinner time. Father, too, looks forward to this date with the family. He has had a hard day at the office, but in the meantime, he will relax at dinner with those he loves. Dad will be here any minute. Better tell Mother she's needed in the kitchen. And perhaps more importantly, why so much of what we think about it 
isn't true. Well, the male breadwinner family is the least traditional marriage form throughout almost all of history. That's Stephanie Kuntz, author, historian, and director of research and public education for the Council on Contemporary Families. In fact, if you go back to the 18th century, the only time you ever see a man refer to himself as a sole provider, he's asking for pity or mercy because his yoke mate or yoke fellow, uh, his wife, was not able or willing to help him out for, uh, at a particular time. So the idea that men were the ones who provided for the family is very rare. Nuclear families, breadwinner husband, homemaker wife and their kids, who live in a contained house as a contained unit, are honestly kind of new. For much of history, people just didn't live long enough to have big extended families. When they did, households were often multi-generational. Parents, grandparents, children, all under one roof. But when World War II hit, American families were torn apart. Fathers went to war. So mothers entered the workforce taking up thousands of open and critically necessary jobs. In 1945, the war ended. Men came home, expecting their old jobs back. But what would happen to all of those women? In an attempt to lure women back into the home, American policymakers created the idea of the homemaker, mistress of her domain, manager of her homestead. Running the household was a career, the idea that this was what women, or at least a certain type of middle-class white women, should be doing was everywhere. And sociologists for a while were saying that this is the only way to have a good family, and therefore it's really important to break your ties with the extended family. If, if you go back and you look at psychology textbooks, they would say that it's very unhealthy for a wife to want to bring her parents into the home. She should be devoting herself entirely to her husband and her child. Another key part of the new nuclear family was the male breadwinner. He was also a byproduct of policy decisions. The family wage he was paid. The New Deal support that gave him a ladder to the middle class. In the post-World War II era, he was set up for success. Coming out of World War II and the Depression, the United States was the country with the most economic potential, the least disruption by the war. And because of the New Deal, there were all sorts of regulations to protect working class share of this new prosperity. For about 30 years, from World War II into the 1970s, there was an era where the average working uh, man earned three or four times what his father had earned at the same age, and his real wages rose steadily. The 1950s model family wasn't actually a return to tradition. It was new. It was different. It was trendy. A sign of American greatness, especially in comparison to our greatest competitor, the Soviet Union. And it was marketed accordingly. People were just learning how to live in this particular form. And in fact, most, I think, of the sitcoms that we now think about as representing the traditional family were like the beer ads of that era. They were like, if you buy this kind of milk and this kind of bread and this kind of refrigerator, you can live like these Ozzie and Harriet kind of families. So how 
did such a specific social trend become so deeply ingrained and idealized? This idealization of the nuclear family, the male breadwinner family, was a real political part of the 1950s. Uh, it was a way of saying, Here, here's what makes America great, as opposed to all of those underdeveloped countries that have extended families, or as opposed to, say, communist Russia, which has women out in the workforce. Part of it was the political idea that an American industrialization is the best system in the world and our nuclear family is the best. We now feel nostalgia and reverence for a trend that was, if anything, a blip. A brief moment in history when so many elements came together in a way that we can't and shouldn't replicate. So this breadwinner nuclear family was based upon two kinds of things that are gone today. One, we might have some legitimate nostalgia for a time when working people could, in fact, uh, support their family on a single wage. The other one, which I hope we don't have too much nostalgia for, was a time when women had not very little access to jobs or to even to education, or at least to higher education that led to professional responsibilities. So even as men's real wages rose, women's real wages were flat. They, are, uh, they were only hired for temporary jobs. And so the only way that a woman could get access to this expanding new cultural ideals and prosperity was by getting married. The result was the period of time when there were more marriages, there were earlier marriages than ever before in American history, and more children were being brought up in male breadwinner families where the wife stayed home. I think it's important to understand that that nostalgia for the 50s was not something that the 50s actually felt. There was a lot of discontent with these kind of families in the 50s. Men felt that they were being henpecked and taken advantage. Women felt that they were being, you know, just absolutely ignored in the home. The 1950s family was made possible by rigid gender and racial hierarchies. Let's be clear. Although plenty of folks today look back at this lifestyle with rose-colored glasses, many of those who actually experienced it weren't so happy. In other words, the reality didn't live up to the image, including, you guessed it, the dominant view of white womanhood. The concept of the nuclear family is premised on very clear gendered roles. And white womanhood has historically been centered on notions of purity and cleanliness and respectability, a certain kind of public presentation. That's Premila Nadezen. She teaches history at Barnard. When we zoom out further, we can see how that cultural construction was predicated on something else, the undervalued work of domestic workers. Those images of white womanhood were only possible because many middle-class white women and certainly upper-class white women could outsource the dirty work in their home. 
So housework is not easy work. It's backbreaking work. It, especially in the 19th century and the early 20th century, there were no washing machines. It involved washing clothes by hand. It involved heating the home with coal or with wood. Sometimes chopping wood, mopping floors. It's very difficult, backbreaking work. And part of the way that white womanhood was constructed was for middle-class women who could afford to to hire someone else to do that dirty work, so they could, in fact, achieve this very visible public status of white womanhood. Not surprisingly, this work has always been highly racialized, or as Premila says, othered. Domestic work historically has been a fairly diverse occupation in the United States. There were women of Irish descent, women of German descent, Japanese descent, Chinese, Mexican-American, and African-American women who all worked as domestics throughout the 18th, 19th, 20th centuries. At the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th centuries, more and more opportunities for white women opened up in industry as well as in service. So we saw a lot of European descended women who moved out of domestic work into these other occupations, which, which left a disproportionate number of women of color, especially African-American women in the occupation of domestic work. So part of the reason why we see a growing proportion of African-American women in domestic work is because they were shut out of other occupations. They were not hired in the service sector, and they had far fewer jobs in industry. African-American women were barred from most jobs, but domestic labor was a different story. So African-American women in the United States had served as domestic workers for many generations, and that dates back to the era of slavery. So there was an association, I think, a longstanding association between African-American women and servitude more broadly. By 1950, 42% of employed African-American women were domestic workers. That's a huge proportion of black women who were domestic workers. I think one of the most important associations between African-American women and domestic work was this figure, this trope of the mammy, which was a stereotype of a devoted servant who uh, worked for a white family. And this was an image that emerged in the early 20th century to justify black women's status as household workers. The assumption was that they were content, they were happy, they had no family or life of their own, but they were simply there to serve the white family. This was a figure that was depicted in Gone with the Wind in Margaret Mitchell's famous book. And it suggests that African-American women were actually very happy in this position of being domestic workers and serving white families. What's perhaps most insidious about the nuclear family was the hidden labor supporting it. Today, those who look back fondly on the 1950s see a husband, a wife, 2.5 kids, a house they own, a yard, a fence. And they see whether they're willing to admit it or not, whiteness. This was a white trend, a white ideal, a lifestyle that targeted white families. And women of color, especially black women, 
played an invisible but essential role in its success. So this type of family often didn't work that well for those in it, and it exploited the labor of women of color. So again, it begs the question, how did it become so idealized? Here's Stephanie Kuntz. It's not until the 70s when you begin to lose the economic and political gains of the New Deal that you begin to get this nostalgia, partly on the part of people who did see that their real wages were falling, and partly as a political measure by ideologues who said that if women would stay home and if we wouldn't have divorce and if women wouldn't work, then we wouldn't have any of the problems that we began to see in the 80s. So as women began to make these gains, ironically, it was just as the working class jobs were beginning to be uh, degraded and policies were beginning to roll back. And by the 1970s, you had a resurgent group of uh, right-wing corporations who were trying very hard to roll back the protections for unions. And the result was that they began to say, yes, you're discontented with what's going on, and that's just because uh, women have moved out into the workforce and blacks are beginning to challenge uh, white supremacy. And this is the reason that you're feeling all this discomfort. Uh, so I think it was a pretty uh, conscious at least on some people's part, manipulation of old prejudices to create a new kind of um, nostalgia for a family that, that most people in practice had found not quite as wonderful as Ozzie and Harriet made it out to be. The great irony is that the same 1950s family conservatives claim to value was simultaneously undermined by conservative economic policies, like declining wages, the erosion of public benefits. We'll talk about that more in a future episode. For this episode, it's important to understand that the problem with the nuclear family isn't just false nostalgia. It's the fact that it's been used as the basis for policies that have made life harder for the vast majority of families. For Black women, the expectation or requirement has always been to work. Lower rates of marriage in Black communities have been pathologized. Welfare reform of the 1990s came after decades of stigmatizing Black single mothers. By getting rid of cash assistance, policymakers tried to push even more poor, disproportionately Black women into the paid labor force. In contrast, the policy incentives for middle-class, married white women has always been more contradictory. Culturally, they've been encouraged to stay home with young children, even as two incomes have become necessary for more and more families. What do these policy incentives look like? Sometimes they're subtle. The U.S. tax code favors families with a sizable gap in income between primary and secondary earners. That reinforces gender inequity by discouraging married women from working. And racial inequity by giving more advantages to white families, who, as scholar Dorothy A. Brown says, are more likely to fit the mold. Taxes aren't the only way that the government values some families over others. Married couples in the U.S. receive more than a 1,000 rights and benefits under federal law. Meanwhile, there's a particularly high penalty to single motherhood. Our lack of a social safety net 
no universal public health care, no federal paid family leave, no public child care, means, as sociologist David Brady says, there's a penalty on single mothers. In other words, it's not poor lifestyle choices that make single moms more likely to be poor in the U.S. It's a set of policy choices that leave single mothers more economically vulnerable here than in much of the rest of the world. Now, many people will tell you there's a reason to incentivize marriage. They'll say it's because kids who are raised with two parents fare better. It's a line we've been told for years. Remember those psychology textbooks from the 1950s? Kids who are raised with two biological parents have better outcomes than those raised in single-parent households. Or as they'd likely put it, broken homes. There's just one problem with that conventional wisdom. It's wrong. Rigorous reviews have found that research lacks any clear consensus on the relationship between family structure and kids' well-being. And new research by Harvard University's Christina Cross has found that for Black families, what they look like doesn't actually make much of a difference. Housing segregation, employment discrimination, it's these racialized inequities that actually determine how kids do. The grand irony is that conservatives have lost the war of ideas when it comes to family structure. Americans today are more accepting of a wide range of families than at any point in history, according to a recent Gallup poll. I personally experienced these changes. When I announced I was pregnant, people were just excited. Family members and friends cheered. They threw baby showers. There may have been some gossip, but no one questioned the validity of my family or my love for my son. No one doubted my ability to be an excellent mother. People still tell me that my son is lucky. But that emerging cultural acceptance, especially for white, more affluent single moms like me, has bumped up against something else, racial backlash. The women's movement and the black liberation struggle and many other movements for social equality have uh, convinced many Americans that family diversity is not all bad, that you have to accept uh, that women are going to work, that there will be divorce, that sometimes people, kids are better off when parents are allowed to divorce. So you have more acceptance of family diversity, but that's continually rubbing up against the fact that the real living conditions of most working class and middle class families have been degraded. You know, we have more computers, we have more luxuries, we have all this new music and video stuff, and yet it's harder to buy a home, it's harder to have a college education, it's harder to have access to health care through your jobs and to a pension through your jobs. Even so, the so-called traditional family has held on to its cultural power through policy. Or maybe it's more accurate to say, lack thereof. In the U.S., we have little social insurance and almost no public investment in kids outside of education. Family life feels more financially precarious for many, even a lot of middle-class families. And that precarity can fuel something of a misremembering. So there's just this, I think, constant rub between, yes, I want the advantages of being able to to work and of this new, more accepting society, and yet 
surely I shouldn't have to work this hard. Wouldn't it be nice to be able to stay home with my kids? And that is constantly being manipulated by everyone from advertisers to right-wing ideologues to convince us that the problem has been the racial ethnic diversification and the overemphasis on women's participation in the workforce rather than the degradation of our work patterns and the failure to catch up with the rest of the modern world in developing a decent care system. So when my colleague told me there's a reason that most people choose to do what you're doing with another person, well, he was right. But it's a decision that our country tries to make for us by giving certain parents a leg up. Next week on White Picket Fence. And so if you look at the composition of who is doing the care work in terms of women of color, black women, immigrant women, it's no coincidence to me that the composition of who performs that work and the devaluation of that work goes hand in hand. White Picket Fence is a Wonder Media Network production. Our producers are Maddie Foley, Edie Allard, and Taylor Williamson. Executive producer is Jenny Kaplan. Special thanks to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the Shared Ascent Fund for their generous support for this season. We want to hear about your caregiving experiences, especially during the pandemic. Just call 212-655-5048 and leave us a voicemail with your story. We might just play it on the show. That's 212-655-5048. The world of politics can certainly feel overwhelming. Right-wing movements are gaining traction. And there's too much to do before the midterm elections next fall. For Stories of Hope, I'm listening to Season 2 of Words to Win By, hosted by renowned communications researcher and campaign advisor, Anat Shankar Osario. Each week, Anat takes listeners on a journey from Switzerland to Arizona to the Dominican Republic to unpack some of the fiercest fights and biggest come from behind victories for progressives. New episodes of Words to Win By premiere every Tuesday. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts.